0: We get God to help us, and somebody had the bright idea. We're going to take the Ark of the Covenant out of the out of the tabernacle and take it to the battle with us, and then God is going to have to fight to defend himself, and we'll have him on our side. So they, with all of their stubborn, unrepentant hearts and their their superstitious foolishness. Uh, They had all that wrapped up in the garb of great uh, religious splendor and pomp, and it ended in a great disaster. The Israelites lost a terrible battle and the war to the Philistines, 30,000 casualties in a day. Their priests were killed, and the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. That was chapter 4. We come here now to chapter five. That's the background. And in my opinion, by the way, chapters five and six are a couple of the most entertaining chapters in all the Bible. And so I hope that we'll, we'll enjoy it a little bit this morning as we go through the, this text. Verse one of chapter five of first Samuel. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, They brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. The war is over, and the Philistines take their newly captured ark, their little trophy of war, from the battlefield at Ebenezer down to the city of... Oh, I I left this off. First, the, the Israelites took it from Shiloh to Ebenezer, the battle. They lose. Now the Philistines... Let's catch up on our slides here. The Philistines take it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, one of the five... Cities, you'll recall, we we noticed last week that the the Philistines have those five yellow dots, five major cities, and there's a king in each one, a lord or a king that is over each of those cities. So they take it to Ashdod and they take the ark and they put it in the temple of one of their prime gods was, or if not the prime god that they worshipped was Dagon, and they there's a temple to Dagon there in Ashdod and so they put the Ark of the Covenant there Now they didn't just go there because they needed some place to go they couldn't find an empty warehouse they needed some real estate to store the Ark that's not why they take it there they took the Ark of God to the temple of their God Dagon to make a couple of statements statement number one is our God is better than your God we beat you and so therefore our God beat your God and so they're taking the ark there as a trophy to say, here, Dagon is better than Yahweh, God of the Israelites. The second statement that's there is, well, the God of Israel has been powerful for them in the past, and we want to keep this around, and the more gods you can have, the better, because when you need power, it's good to have a God on your side, and now that He's with us, He's on our side, even though it didn't do much good for the Israelites, the Well, that's their thinking. Verse 3. Or I guess I skipped verse 2, didn't I? But I should read it. Uh, I told you about it. Then the Philistines took the ark of God. They brought it into the house of Dagon and they set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both of his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. That is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So they've taken the Ark of the Covenant to Ashdod, put him in their temple to Dagon and think that they're making a statement. And God says, well, he decides to mess with them a little bit. You think that Dagon is something. And so I'm going to make Dagon bow. And that night. First night, Dagon, right down on his face, right in front of the ark. They come the next morning. It's a little embarrassing. It's a little embarrassing when you have to take your God and you have to help him stand up. See, there's a point there. And, of course, they missed the point. The next day, Dagon has fallen again. This time, his head is broken off. His hands are broken off. All that's left is the trunk of the body, all laying there in pieces on the ground. Their God is broken. And of course, there's a point there, which once again they miss. Instead, what they do is say, oh, this place where Dagon has broken is now holy ground because he broke here. And we will never step on this again. And I assume they glue him back together and probably stand him back up. You know, idols and idolatry is absolute foolishness. It's a good thing we don't have idols today. And yes, that is sarcasm. I don't have time to preach that sermon this morning, so insert your own sermon here. I'll simply note this. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 where it says, and covetousness or greed is idolatry. We have plenty of covetousness, plenty of greed today. So the reality is we have lots of idolatry, even in 21st century America. God has been making some statements. They haven't been getting the point. God is not done with the folks at Ashdod. Verse 6 The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of God of the God of Israel must not remain with us for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. Problem here is not just in the city of of Ashdod, it says it's in the surrounding areas. It's not just in Saint Charles, it's in Saint Charles County is the problem. Not it, the problem is bigger than just this city. We need to understand where it says here there the afflicts the people with tumors, that word tumor is is in most of our modern translations. But if you translate it literally from Hebrew, the word means it's burning. And burning as in burning with a boil or burning with an ulcer or burning with a tumor, especially, it's implicated in the word, in the private areas, okay? that's specific enough for you. So the old King James translates that word as emrods, which is an old word for hemorrhoids. This is where we all laugh. We go, oh, this is why this is an entertaining story. J. Vernon McGee used to say, this is why we know God has a sense of humor, okay? Well, if you're not a little amused by that, you're probably a Philistine. (laughs) Because the only people that don't think it's funny is the Philistines. But it's not really a laughing matter. It's more than hemorrhoids. Notice it says there in verse 6 that he, that's God, terrified them. There is, people are distraught. People are afraid. And it says again in verse 6, they are afflicted. This is no picnic. This, the people are suffering. We get down to verse 7 and where we read, and they say God's hand is hard or heavy against us. It's a severe problem. And as we'll see later as we go on, people are dying. This is death. And they say that God's hand is hard against them and against Dagon, our God. They recognize that Yahweh, God, the God of Israel, is not only against them, but He is against Dagon. There's a a conflict going on. God is judging not only them, He's judging Dagon. And yet, again, they miss the point. The God of Israel is judging us and He's judging our God. And that should register here that if your God is greater than our God, maybe we should get rid of our God and follow you. But their solution is Yahweh God needs to go. That's their solution. And so it says that, verse 8, So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. And so they brought the ark of God of Israel there. They left Ashdod and went down to Gath. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. Their hope was that the problem is between the God of Israel and their God, their God, uh, Dagon. And so that maybe if we just move Yahweh away, we move this, you know, ark away, that everything will settle down. And maybe then the ark and the God of Israel will be a blessing to the people of Gath. But not so much. The same painful little tumor hemorrhoid things are a problem here. And there's more. We noticed back in, in Ashdod that they, they that God terrified them. Here it says it was causing a very great panic. It's different wording. This word means trouble or confusion or destruction. What I find interesting is you find the exact same word used a few chapters later, actually over in 1 Samuel chapter 14. And there it says this. There's a battle going on. Once again, it's it's much later, but there's a battle going on between Israel and the Philistines. And it says, and behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. That word confusion is the same word here, a very great panic. And I may be stepping out on a limb here. I may be going beyond what Scripture is saying, but I'm surmising that what may be happening is not just that there's confusion, and as we saw before, that there's terror, but there is people are going... Mental here. They're going crazy. And what you have is people going, as we say today, they're going postal. (laughs) They are fighting each other. There is violence, and people are killing one another as part of this hand of the Lord that's upon them. And so, certainly, there is great panic. There is great fear. There's certainly lots of pain and embarrassing stuff with these hemorrhoids, but there are people dying out of violence as well as, I think, dying from disease. Verse 10, so they, the folks here in Gath, sent the ark of God to Ekron. They uh, don't even wait to call a committee of the kings to figure out what to do. They just sent it up the road. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered, they call for a meeting of the kings. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place. That it may not kill us and our people, for there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there, and the men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. You see, they said, don't bring it, don't bring it here, don't send it here, but whatever objections they gave, it didn't stop the people from, from Gath from getting it there. They got it there and left. And here the people of Ekron are, it's there, and the plague follows right on its heel. Again, there is deathly panic. People are dying from disease and violence and the tumors. So they call the Philistine lords and say, get rid of this thing. We don't want it. Verse 1 of chapter 6, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. So for all of this has taken place over a seven-month period. And the Philistines called for the priests and for the diviners, and they said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it back to its place. They've all decided nobody in Philistia wants this ark anymore. Everybody agrees. Send it back to Israel. But, how do you return an ark? You know, where's the customer service desk? <laughs> you know, what do you do? You know, they don't have a receipt. <laughs> no, I, I'm just kidding. How do you return an ark? It's the question. So they bring the priests and the diviners and they ask them, what do we do? And they say, verse 3. If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we should return to him? And they answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? The priests and the diviners, they warned these leaders. You might recall last week in chapter 4, when the Israelites brought the ark onto the battlefield, the people in Philistia were afraid. That was their first reaction was fear because they all knew what had happened some 400 years before when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. And so the diviners and, and these these. Priests of these other gods in the land, they said, don't forget about Egypt. You were afraid earlier of the plagues that God brought on the Egyptians. See, that's what God did when he delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. Recall how he did it. God told Pharaoh, said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. And God said, Okay. And he sent a plague on them. And, God, and Pharaoh said, okay, they can go. And then he changed his mind, no, they can't go. And so God said, okay, send another plague. Ten times that happened. Finally, after ten times, Pharaoh learned his lesson. He said, okay, get out of here. They left. There's much more to the story, but we're not telling that story. And so the, the these guys say, learn from the Egyptians. Don't keep fighting this. You you say you want to get rid of this now? Well, don't keep fighting this God, because he destroyed the Egyptians. He'll destroy us. Let's not fight it any longer. It'll get worse. And so, don't send this back alone, but send it with gifts. And they said, "What gifts?" He said, "They said." Five golden tumors, one for each of you kings and you cities, and five golden mice. And here's where we learn for the first time that along with the these hemorrhoids and uh, the the terror and the death and the people going postal and all of this, there's mice everywhere. Lots of fun going on in Philistine land. So. You may wonder, by the way, what does a golden tumor look like? I pondered that this week. I said, I don't know, but it's probably not something you want to buy for your wife for Valentine's Day next Sunday, just in case you need that reminder. It's coming up. Two more practical questions these um, Philistine kings and lords had to answer. One is, how can we be sure that all of what we're experiencing here with the tumors and the death and the people going postal and the mice, how can we be sure that all of this is really from the hand of Yahweh, the God of Israel, rather than just coincidence? It's just coincidence It followed from city to city with the ark. So how do we know, though, for sure? And secondly, how can we be sure that when we send the ark, along with our offerings back to Israel, how can we be sure that it gets to the right place and gets there safely? Verse 7, chapter 6. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you're returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way. And watch. If it goes on up the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has he that's Yahweh God who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall all know that it is not His hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. And the men did so, and they took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of God on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. So that's their plan. And if this works... It's going to have to be a miracle of God because they have put several obstacles here in the way as a test. First, they say you take this, you make a a cart, make it a new one because if this is God, you want to do your best here. So get a brand new cart and then you're going to attach to the the cart, you're going to hook two cows. Two cows that have never been yoked. You see, the yoke, they put it, you know, around the neck. And if it's a cow that's never been yoked, they're going to they're gonna fight the yoke. They're going to fight the yoke because they don't like this thing around them. They're going to fight the yoke because when they try to move, it constricts them. And they're going to fight the yoke because this other cow is going to be moving. They're going to be moving in different ways. They're going to be fighting each other. And they're going to be fighting against the weight of this cart. And it's not likely to go anywhere. Problem number one. The obstacle number two, they say take two milk cows. Two cows that have, that are nursing calves. And you take the calves and you shut them away from the cow. And cows have a very strong maternal instinct. They want to get at, get to these calves. And so the, if you just let these cows go, where they are going to go is they're going to go find their calf. And so if these cows go anywhere except back toward their calves, that's that is not normal. Thirdly, there's no driver on this cart. Now I haven't spent a lot of my life hanging around cows, but I grew up in Texas. There's lots of cows there. I've lived a good hunk of my life here in Missouri, and there's we get very far from from uh, St. Charles County, and we're around a lot of cows in a lot of places. If you've been around cows and you've watched them very much, how do cows move? They don't tend to just go down the road. Cows do a lot of standing around, and when they move, they kind of meander. Grass. (laughs) Pond. And so if these cows, without a driver, you put them there, if they just go down a road, down a path, and they go in a direction without meandering here and meandering there and stopping and smelling the clover, you know, it's not normal. You put all three of these together, and if these cows go anywhere in particular, it's an act of God. And if they go into the land of Israel, it is definitely God. It's a miracle from Him. Verse 12. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along the highway, lowing as they went. And they turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. So sure enough, when they hook up the cows to the the cart, the cart leaves the city of Ekron, goes to the nearest town on the other side of the border in Israel to Beth Shemesh. There was no fighting the yoke. There was no hesitating over their calves. There was no meandering into the fields. They just went straight down the road. The five Philistine kings are following behind, watching over their investments. But what they see is there is no doubt. This is all from the hand of Yahweh God. What a sight for the folks there in Beth Shemesh. My guess is that these Israelites have had no clue of what's going on in Philistine land. First of all, ever since the war, the Israelites are probably staying well away from Philistines. <laughs> and secondly, the Philistines aren't publicizing what's going on in their land. This is not something you want to get out. Our men are kind of disabled with And people are disabled with hemorrhoids and tumors and people are dying and killing each other and there's mice running everywhere. That's not what you put out on the, you know, on CNN if you can avoid it. So I imagine that these Israelites have no idea what's going on there. They're just out trying to get in their harvest, probably worried that a Philistine raiding party might be coming soon to steal their harvest. (laughs) Something's coming down the road and it turns out it's the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God. And they rejoice. The cart came, verse fourteen, to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and stopped there. And a great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the Ark of of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures. And they set them upon the great stone, and the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. And these are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron, the five cities. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both the fortified cities and the unwalled villages. And a great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. The ark made it home. The people of Beth Shemesh rejoice in God's blessing they used the wood of the cart and, and they offered the, the those cows as a sacrifice to God. The people from the city came and they offered more sacrifices as well. The Philistines went on back to Philistia. And all was good and well. It's a great story. And through the centuries, I imagine that every generation of Israelites and, and of Christians who have followed, we read the story, we grin, we have a good laugh. They say God sure taught those Philistines. The bad guys got what they deserved. They picked on God's people. They disrespected God. They disrespected His the Ark of the Covenant. They got what was coming to them. They suffered humiliating disease and mice and terror and death. They play hot potato with the Ark for a while. You take it. No, we don't want it. Oh, you take it. No, we don't want it. They did that for a while. Finally, they have to admit they are no match and their God, Dagon, is no match for Yahweh, the God of Israel. And they return the ark. And there's some valuable lessons in that. teaches us that our God is the true God. Other gods are simply powerless idols. Even as God Himself says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Our God is the true God. He is the only God. It teaches us that our God is sovereign. He is in control. No matter how bleak circumstances in your life are, no matter how bleak the situation in our world may appear, No matter how much it may appear that the bad guys are winning the day, they are only winning the day. But our God is in control. He is working His plan. And ultimately, as we see at the end of the book, when you get to Revelation, what you discover at the end of the story, God wins. Be encouraged. It teaches us that our God is mighty. He does not need us like Dagon to stand Him back up because He has fallen. He does not need us to protect Him or to defend His honor. God has all on His own glorified Himself in before the Philistines and before the Israelites. And for all of us, Through the centuries, as we read this story, we see God didn't need the Israelites to defend him. He honors and glorifies himself. The ark is back in Israel. All is good and the story is over. Or is it? There's one more scene left in chapter 6. One more scene to this story and a couple more important lessons to grasp verse 19 And he that is God struck some of the men of Bethshemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord he struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow The men of Bethshemesh did something that God had expressly forbidden God had instructed that the ark was to be kept in the holy of holies. In the holiest place of the holy place in the tabernacle. That was where the ark was supposed to be and be kept. And it was to be seen only by the high priest of Israel. And only one day a year he could go in on the day of atonement. That was the only person and the only time that someone could go and stand in front of and view the ark. And it was on that day that he would take the blood of the sacrifices and atone for the sins of the people. We talked about that last week. Now, what has happened is, and by the way, if the ark ever had to be moved, Which it did during the time of the people in the wilderness from the time of Mount Sinai till they go to the promised land until the time of Joshua when they go into the land and and as Joshua and the people are going into the land, there are times the ark has to be carried. It has to be moved. So how is it moved? If you go to, we won't go there this morning, but you go to the book of Numbers and the book of Numbers in chapter four, you find that there is a very specific, there are very specific instructions, a very specific process by which the priests were to go into the holy place and from the holy place to take down the veil and to put it over the ark so that no one sees the ark as they do that. And then they are to bring a covering and they cover that the veil and the ark with this covering. Then they have another cloth that they bring and they put over those coverings. And then they go and cover the other things inside the holy place. And then they begin to take down the tabernacle itself And so that no one outside of the priest sees what was inside the holy place. And no one of the priests even sees the ark itself as things are being taken down. And now as the ark is carried, it is carried covered. No one sees it. Now the Philistines don't know the law of God. And God in His grace did not strike them when they move the ark. And when they do it, not according to His instructions. But the ark has come back home to Israel to God's people who have God's law and who have God's instructions. We don't know if when the ark arrived, whether it was covered or not. My guess is it was not covered as it arrives. And the people here of Beth Shemesh, though they know that they are not supposed to be seeing the ark, but what they do is apparently they turn it into a tourist attraction. Everyone comes and looks. And some of the people get the idea to go and see what's inside the ark. Here in the ESV it translates it and says the people looked upon the ark. Every other English translation I can find translates it, they looked into the ark. They lift the lid and look in to see perhaps, maybe they want to check, did the Philistines take the stuff out? Because the ark was to have the commandments of God written on the tablets. God gave to Moses. He was to have the rod of Aaron that budded. It was to have a container of manna. Maybe they wanted to see, is it still there? But it wasn't their job. It wasn't their right. Matter of fact, the law of God said no. No one does that. And God struck many of them dead for profaning the ark of God by looking into it. Verse 20, Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. And to whom shall He go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. The tables in this story have turned suddenly and drastically. Moments ago, the Philistines were being judged by God, and now we read the Israelites are being judged by God because they have disrespected Him and they've disrespected the ark. Moments ago we were laughing at the Philistines playing hot potato with the ark of God and now the Israelites are playing hot potato with the ark of God. They say, we don't want it, we don't want it. And they send up word up to the folks at Kiriath-Jerim and say, here, you take it. God is like a good comedian. A good comedian gets you laughing and then suddenly you realize you're laughing at yourself. Here we've been making fun of the Philistines and we realize that the Israelites are in the same boat here as the Philistines. There is a message here. There's a lesson here. The ark is back. But why did the Philistines win the war and get possession of the ark in the first place? We go back to the lesson last week, to chapter 4. We learned last week that because the Israelites were playing games with God, they were playing religion, they were going through the motions of worshiping God while ignoring His Word, while disobeying His laws, while living immoral and godless lives, and they were following after other gods, worshiping other gods, the gods of the surrounding Canaanites. All of this while going to church at the right times and saying, we're, we're good, you know, we're good church going people. And God was disgusted with them. And then when they tried to force God's hand by taking the Ark of the Covenant, in the battle God just said, "Good. You want nothing to do with me? I'll just take the ark away for a while." Now the ark is back. They've had 7 months to learn the lesson that God was trying to teach them for a while, and they haven't learned it yet. We won't we don't see it here now, but we will see it next week in the next chapter that Actually, they won't learn the lesson here for another 20 years. It's going to be 20 years before the Israelites say, Oh, God, <laughs> we miss you. And that they turn back to Him. So two lessons as I wrap up this morning. They ask the right question. Here is these people are struck down dead, they ask the right question, they ask, Who is able to stand before this holy God? It's the right question because what they realize is the Lord God is holy. Our God is the true God. Our God is sovereign. Our God is mighty. And our God is holy. What that means is He cannot stand sin. And that should strike fear into the core of our being because we should realize, I sin. And that's what these folks here at Beth Shemesh finally say is, who is able to stand before this God? He is holy and we're not. So get this ark out of here because the ark isn't God, but it represents his presence. We just don't want to be around it. God is holy. He is not to be trifled with. And fear is the right response when we realize that God is holy. That's why the Bible says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When we understand God's holiness, it should cause us to recognize our sin and realize, I've got a problem. The judgments here in this story are warnings that God is a holy God who will one day judge sin. That message is clear through the Bible. And yet we live in a world which has very little or no fear of God. But that's foolishness because the God who made us is a holy God and He will judge us. And we are sinners. We are, every one of us, guilty. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, we should fear God. But there's one more lesson here. And that is that God is gracious. The same God who judges also saves. He saves those who will turn to Him. In this story, we see, in, even in this story that has lots of judgment in it, there we see the grace of God. The, the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in the, in the temple of their idol. And God knocks the idol down. What God didn't do was wipe out the Philistines for beating up on His people. He didn't wipe out the Philistines for mishandling the ark of God. He doesn't wipe out the Philistines for basically taking a victory lap and saying, our God is better than you. But God knocks down their idol. Twice He breaks their idol. Why? To get their attention and say, I am God. Beside Me there is no other. They miss the lesson. God sends these The tumors and all the stuff to get their attention to say, I am God. And they don't get it. They recognize that God is judging not only them, but he's judging their God. And they don't say, if our God is being beaten by your God, by you, then you are God. He is not. Okay, we'll worship you. The Philistines never turn away from their gods. But God in His grace still doesn't wipe them out. He gives opportunity. God is doing all of this for the benefit of the Israelites who claim to be His people, but who have been living in rebellion against God, who have been ignoring God, who have been trying to use God rather than worship God. And God is doing all of this and brings the ark back and all of us to see, so God is saying, Here I am, and they're not going to get it for another 20 years. What we see here is the mercy of God, that He still gives opportunity. Whoever listens to me will turn to me, He will save. He did it then, and He still does it today. God continues to provide opportunity to people to find forgiveness to find grace, to have a relationship with Him, to find a different life now, and eternal life forever. That's why God, when somebody says, you know, if there's a God up there, strike me with lightning, He doesn't zap them right then. And they say, see, there is no God there. No, there is a God there. He is just gracious with you. He's giving you more time. We live in a world that is spitting in the face of God and unfortunately even many people who warm the pews of churches who come and go through the motions and play games with God but do not honor Him as God follow Him. We have a God who is gracious and merciful. We also have a God who is holy, who will judge sin. So I just want to end this morning with familiar verses that grab both of those concepts and put it right together. You know these words. I often end with at least one verse here, and I'm going to go three verses this morning. For God so loved the world. God is gracious. He so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's ultimately the message that's here. The real question is, are you trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior? That's the means, the way God has provided to pay for your sin. And then if you trust in Him, are you following Him? Or have you gotten distracted by other things? Let's pray. Father, thank You for this story. What a great story. If all we did was tell the story, it would be entertaining. But the lessons here are important. They are lessons of life and death. It's bigger than physical life and physical death. It's about heaven and hell. We are sinners and as such we are under your judgment, but you loved us so much you sent Jesus to bear the penalty of our sin. We can have forgiveness of sin. And all the blessings of eternal life simply by receiving Him, by trusting Him as our Savior. sounds too good to be true, and it would be too good to be true if I were making it up. But I didn't say that, You did. So Lord, I pray that no one here, no one watching this morning at home, no one misses that message. And no one misses even this opportunity you're giving them to trust in Jesus as their Savior and find in Him all the promises and blessings that you have that you offer. And Father, then as your people, may we live as your people, and not be like the people of Israel who so often lived faithlessly following after other things because it's a dead-end road. So, Father, we ask these things, they might be true in us for Your glory, Your honor, and for our good. In Jesus' name.